The other thing I was thinking about is, do we want to do any follow-up on Alaska Virgin? Yeah, people hate follow-ups. Yeah. People, yeah. People definitely hate hot takes. I think they also hate follow-ups. Yeah. I don't think we need to. All right. Um, Actually, maybe I'll just use this for the teaser quote. It didn't go well. Welcome back to episode 47 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today we are covering the Atlassian IPO. And normally we're hesitant to do episodes on such recent news unless we're like actually on the scene week of can like be the, you know, one of the first takes you hear on it. And otherwise, ultimately, we don't have enough uh, enough to reflect on. Um, to make a, a kind of recent uh, a recent IPO or a recent acquisition, something that we should cover on the show. However, there's so much interesting story behind Atlassian, and there's already been so much um, data to go off of in the last what two years? Two eight, years. Two years since Hard the to believe IPO. It's been two years. Yeah, yeah. In fact, when I was writing this little intro, I was like, in the last couple quarters since the IPO, but really, really been two years that um, we uh, we want to talk about it, and we think we have a, a good story to tell. Uh, before we move on with the show, David, it's great to see you in person. Yeah, it's great to be here, Ben. <laughs> great to be on the show. <laughs> so as uh, I think most people know at this point, uh, we've been doing most shows remotely um, because I actually earlier this year moved to San Francisco and I've been living there and working on something new, more to more to come on that later this year or early next year. But um but yeah, this is actually our first in-person episode of 2017. Yeah, I mean, it's you, good to be back. You look very similar to how you looked in 2016. Uh, haven't aged a day. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, it's good to be back in person and uh, good to be back in Seattle. Look forward to being back often and doing more in-person acquired episodes. Sweet. Our sponsor for this episode is Perkins Cooey, the counsel to great companies. Today's sponsorship is with Jason Day, the firm-wide chair of Perkins Public Company Practice. So Jason, we discuss a lot of companies from outside the U.S., including Atlassian on this episode, uh, on the show. And so my question for you today is, how does the process work for one of those companies IPOing on the U.S. public markets? Well, a U.S. IPO for a foreign private issuer can be actually really similar to the process for a U.S. company. And in some ways, it might even be, be easier. You know, if they qualify, they can take advantage of the same Jobs Act benefits that an emerging growth company based in the U.S. can. So that's, you know, confidential submission of the registration statement. You can test the waters to gauge interest before you launch the IPO. And you can take advantage of all those other accommodations available to smaller, or I should say, emerging growth companies. The interesting part is they can even stick with IFRS. They don't have to convert the U.S. gap. And once they're public, it gets even better because, uh, you know, there's more accommodations that aren't available to U.S. companies. So it's actually quite, uh, quite a similar process. In some cases, it can be a little smoother for them. Thanks, Jason. If you want to learn more about Perkins Cooey or reach out to Jason specifically, you can click the link in the show notes or in the Slack. And listeners, if you are not in the Slack, we're about to cross a thousand, uh, a thousand members. You can go to uh, acquired.fm and uh, in the little sidebar or on mobile down at the bottom, you can join the Slack. David, you ready to take us in? Let's do it. Um, so Atlassian, this has been a much requested episode, pretty much for the whole life of Acquired. We're excited, as Ben said in the preamble, to dive in. 
Um, and I think this is actually, I, w- I was going through all of our episodes in preparation for today. And I think this is the first company that we're going to cover on Acquired that's been bootstrapped and gone, quote unquote, all the way. Uh, we've certainly covered other bootstrapped companies in the past, but none of them that have gone on to be kind of lasting, independent, large public companies without taking any venture capital along the way. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, the the be it for actual necessary reasons or because that's the de facto way that people build companies these days, everyone just takes around every 18 to 24 months. And that's often driven because your competitors are doing that or be some some timing reason why it needs to grow, grow, grow. But it's kind of funky seeing a company go all the way the old-fashioned way. Yeah. And not quite. I mean, there's a, a round well, from Well, now Excel. they did. So Excel invested and T. Rowe Price invested before they went public, but both of those were only secondary shares sales. Mm. So none of, none of those dollars went to the company's balance sheet. The company never sold any shares to investors. Uh, it was only individual people, shareholders, both the founders and employees that sold along the oh, way. Wow. So we'll get into it, but this is... Uh, I think this is going to be a really interesting counterpoint to sort of the current, you know, uh, wave, if you will, of companies that that are out there right now in sort of the the steroid era of startups <laughs> with with companies raising so much money. Um, and here's Atlassian, which is now a almost eleven billion dollar public company, one of the most successful tech IPOs of the last couple of years, and never raised a dollar. Amazing, amazing. So, uh, getting into it. Atlassian was founded in 2002 by Mike Cannon Brooks and Scott Farquhar in Sydney, Australia. <laughs> and I'm remembering back to our PA semi semi That's episode right. uh, where we were joking about uh, about Australia, and I said that uh, because Authentic was was founded in Melbourne. Florida and you thought it was Melbourne, <laughs> Australia, <laughs> uneducated host over here. But I, it's funny. I actually, I was listening to the most recent earnings call today to, to prepare and it's just awesome hearing them jump on the phone and the Australian accents. Oh, so good. <laughs> and, uh, and I think I, I think I commented in, uh, in response to that, that, uh, Melbourne, Australia and, and all of Australia probably had a much more robust tech scene than, than Melbourne, Florida. And, and indeed it does. There, there are quite <laughs> a number of companies in Australia now. Um, and Atlassian really is is kind of leading the way. Uh, so Mike and Scott, they meet in in college uh, at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, where they were classmates in a in a sort of scholarship uh, program major. Um, a little different than the the U.S. system there. They were, they were had a scholarship into a very prestigious major there, um, which was in business and information technology, and they became close friends. I think there were about forty or fifty people kind of in their class. Um, they became close friends, even though they came from super different backgrounds. So so Scott grew up in a you know very kind of lower middle class family, and Mike actually uh, I believe his father was the head of Citigroup uh, in uh, the investment bank in Australia. Oh, wow. Um, Super cool. Uh, So very different. um, But despite that, they became really good friends. And so they were in in university kind of in the late 90s, early 2000s. It was the dot com, you know, go, go, go years, even in even in Sydney, Australia. So Mike, he, of course, being that that time frame and being in business and and technology, you know, this prestigious major in in Australia, he started a company while he was in school, and it was called the Bookmark Box, and, and of course this was this was in kind of 1999 2000. Scott wasn't involved, 
And so he had an exit. He sold the company to a dot-com, fellow dot-com startup called Blink.com. Wow. <laughs> only, only back in the late 90s. Uh, but this was in the year 2000, but before the crash. Um, so he had a, had a successful exit as like a, I don't know, sophomore, junior in, <laughs> in college. Serial entrepreneur. Serial entrepreneur. So, so he had this experience and, uh, and he and Scott were good friends. And, and most people in their program, you know, would go and work for consulting firms or, or investment banks, uh, like Mike's, Mike's dad and other, you know, sort of well-paying, you know, prestigious jobs right after graduation. And they decided, especially Mike, having had this entrepreneurial experience, this was like the last thing in the world that they wanted to do when they graduated. So they kind of made a pact and they said, if we can do something that enables us not to have a job like that, but still earn the same amount of money per year. And uh, the going rate apparently very specifically was, was $48,500 a year in salary. If they could earn that and not have to work for the man <laughs> for McKinsey or whomever, um, they would be, they would be happy for the rest of their lives. It's funny. I, I mean, number one, duh, like who doesn't, uh, number two, I remember making that exact same pact with my uh, business partner. We made this app in college called Seize the Day, and it was getting a bunch of downloads on the App Store, and we were getting revenue from iAd. I think I've probably talked about this on the show before. Um, and I remember looking at our numbers and thinking, what multiple of this would it need to be for us to get the same jobs that we would get at like a Microsoft or something? <laughs> and like, you know, in, in my case, they never got there. I think we were at like a quarter of what it needed to be or something. And then we both got jobs. But um, well, I, well, I love that line of thinking. Totally. Well, and uh, clearly, though, you just didn't stick with it long enough because yeah. as it turned out, Mike <laughs> and Scott, um, they fell pretty far short of their goal. They only paid themselves apparently 15 thousand dollars a year for the first two years mm. versus versus 48 so like just about a quarter and they they financed it on like 10 grand of credit card debt yeah too, so they, they they didn't raise as we've said didn't raise a dollar they had credit cards they took out hmm. debt they got to about ten thousand dollars in debt before they were able to turn a profit but ben if you had stuck with seize the day a little longer so scott and mike now are i don't know if they are the wealthiest but they are like among the you know kind of top 10 wealthiest people in australia i blew it <laughs> you totally blew it <laughs> <laughs> but now you're now you're a co-host of acquired so what could what could you ask for what could more could you better? ask for <laughs> so they they decide they're going to start a business in mike's case start another business together in pursuit of this this goal of forty eight thousand five hundred dollars per year and they they decide on a name for the business they're inspired by the greek myth the the mythical titan atlas who holds up the heavens and they they take that as inspiration they want to support their customers like atlas holds up the skies ah. and so they call the company atlassian I like it. I mean, yeah. I, I've liked the name. I've liked the logo. It's a good it's name. I always wondered, like, recently. the logo kind of looks like a man, and apparently it looks like a man. The old logo, not the new logo, but the old logo. I always wondered, like, what is this? What's the deal with this? Apparently, it's supposed to be Atlas. Yeah. I was. I mean, all the new branding stuff is really nice and really poppy and really, you know, fresh and clean. Their old logo was, like, so clearly identifiable. Like, I hate when companies yeah. have, like, a, a refresh that takes some of the personality away from the brand. Yeah, yeah. So Not a design podcast. Moving on. Moving on. So they start the company in uh, late 2001, early 2002. 
and they launched their their first product, Jira, which is still, I think, their their biggest product. Beloved by by product managers worldwide. Beloved by product <laughs> managers worldwide. I, I assume many, if not most, folks listening to the podcast right now have used Jira. Yeah, there's. Uh, or I used maybe to, using Jira right now. I used to follow some like parody product management Twitter accounts and stuff, and that I, I think people just people like know the the Jira interface in their sleep, and they have like both happy dreams and nightmares about filing <laughs> tickets. So they launched it in, in April 2002. As we're alluding to, it's it's kind of a, it's an issues and bug tracking tool used mostly by software developers and product managers, although it's now expanded to many more use cases than that. But there was just kind of one problem when they launched it, which was that um, since Mike's first company, the, the dot-com bust had happened, it was now nuclear winter, and here they are, two recent college grads in Sydney, Australia, that are starting a software company, an enterprise software company, no less, where they're trying to sell to other businesses. And, and usually the way you do that is you hire salespeople. Um, but the thing about salespeople is they cost money. And, and so the way traditionally that you do that and you hire the salespeople before you have the money is you raise money from venture capitalists or angels or, or whatnot. And then you use that to build your sales force. Well, there's no way that any VC was going to give money to these two kids, <laughs> college kids in, in Sydney, Australia. Um, and, and they didn't even try. And not to mention, you know, even if you could do a pay for performance basis. So we, we had Scott Dorsey uh, on the, on the show for the exact target episode. And he mentioned that a lot of their, uh, their early salespeople were working a hundred percent, um, for commission. You, you kind of have to have an expensive product to make that work too. The thing about Atlassian, and we'll get into this is super approachable pricing, uh, very generous trial periods, um, a pay as you go thing, a thing where you sign up with your own credit card, uh, kind of democratization of, of who's buying and tying the buyer to the user. And like it's in, in many cases it's a little different now, but in many cases it's just not that expensive. So even if you're paying salespeople on a performance basis, still a long road. Yep. Well, and let's not forget what we're, what we're talking about dollar wise in the company right now. Like their goal is to pay the two of them $48,000 a year. <laughs> they only pay themselves $15,000 a year. That means they're making like $30,000. Like how many people are you going to be able to hire if the entire, you know, sort of capital balance of the company is, is $30,000. Yeah. Great point. Not a lot, but they're scrappy and they have to innovate their way out of this. And so what they decide to do is something that, um, was fairly novel at the time, but not 100% novel. They decided to just sell the software on the internet. Um, so rather than having people sell it, anybody can just come and sign up and and it's in the cloud, it's it's SaaS. And, and that's not, you know, like I said, it's sort of leading edge, but Salesforce is around at this point. The concept of SaaS mm -hmm. exists. They, they host it on their website and you can buy Jira from Atlassian um, on the internet. And this is a little bit of a flash forward um to, to later in the show, but I was looking through the S1 and the the term SaaS only appears four times in their S1 and it, I think three or maybe all four of the four times it refers to uh, external partners. So it's interesting to sort of think about Atlassian doesn't view themselves as a SaaS company or at least 
they don't refer to themselves that way in their their communication to investors. I was sort of trying to figure out what is that? Is it that they feel that they pioneered the category so they don't need to say that they're part of the category or is that that they want to, you know, sort of look at their numbers differently than a quote unquote typical SaaS company would look at numbers? Or is it, you know, they also have this booming on-prem business where they're installing stuff on servers for companies that they, they predated the modern era of SaaS in many ways. They did. They did. But so my hypothesis on this is I'm going to I'm going to borrow from our coffee series here uh, where we, we did the Starbucks episode. And then our last episode was on Blue Bottle. Uh, and we talk about waves of coffee. You know, the first wave of coffee is Folgers and the second wave is Starbucks and the third wave is Blue Bottle and these artisanal hipster uh, you know, coffee shops. I think Atlassian is the third wave, uh, was the mm. first company of the third wave of enterprise software. And so if the first wave is kind of, you know, Microsoft and Oracle and SAP, you know, sort of these big on-prem software selling licenses up front, you know, you come and you install it and they have a huge sales force and it's really crappy software, honestly, you know, um, but CIOs buy it and it's a heavy sales process. The, the second wave is SaaS, right? And that's, that's Salesforce. Um, and they, they change the business model to a subscription basis instead of paying up front for the license. And, and it's delivered via, via the internet instead of on-prem. But at the end of the day, I mean, let's be honest, right? Anybody who's used Salesforce, like it's still kind of crappy software. <laughs> uh, and, and I think, you know, Blue Bottle and, uh, and, and the like, the, the third wave coffee shops would make the argument that, that Starbucks, the second wave, like, yeah, you go drink it in the store. You don't make it at home like Folgers, but it's still pretty crappy coffee. Hmm. Like it's all about same, Blue Bottle. Same product, different means of delivery. Different means of delivery, right? Business model innovation, but the product is still not that great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Blue Bottle would say like what differentiates us is the the coffee is really good. Mm-hmm. And I think Atlassian like their culture and what they've tried to live up to and I think what has led to their success is the this product has to sell itself. We don't sell the product. There are no humans that sell this product. Mm-hmm. Um, there never have been. There there are various flavors of people that market and help deliver it um, especially now that they're much bigger, but they don't sell it in a traditional way. And that means that the product has to be so good that people will buy it anyway. Yeah, that is a really interesting insight that the transition to as a service happens uh, in two steps. And one is the business model and the way that it's built. And then the second is, uh, a, you know, the product actually being very different and the product being delivered as a service. I worked on um, Office for iPad and Office for Mac. And on Office for Mac, we had this big release where we turned it into part of Office 365. So it was Office for Mac as a service. And like literally all that was different was the subscription stuff. And I'm like, but it's still the same bits that get shipped in a CD or, you know, DVD before. Like it's it's still desktop software that now just stops working if you stop paying on a monthly <laughs> basis. And the initial iteration of Adobe Creative Cloud was sort of the same thing. And the the, the bigger incumbents are sort of moving toward more true service, you know, product as a service rather than the typical old product that is just billed as a service. But, you know, in thinking about sort of low-end disruption theory, that's really where the, the magic happens of, of product as a service. The product is, is fundamentally different than the old sort of products. Yep. Yep. You got to remember, these are, these are, you know, Scott, Mike are two kids right out of college. 
I don't think they they necessarily planned all this. Like this was their only option, right? If they wanted to pay themselves the salary that they wanted, they had to sell their right. product right. and they couldn't afford any salespeople. And even if they could, they're in, you know, Sydney, Australia. They're not going to go sell to to, you know, Ford and and Boeing and and Tesla and all their their clients now. Mm-hmm. They have to make a really good product that people are just going to buy themselves over the internet. And and sort of unwittingly, they they really um, they really were the first company of this third wave, if you will, of, of enterprise software that now includes Slack, that now includes GitHub, um, that have the same selling motion. We just make a really great product. We're not going to go out and like take you to a steak dinner to convince the CIO to buy this. Uh, it's going to be ob- adopted organically by teams uh, and grow within within accounts. Let's put a pin in that steak dinner and come back to it. <laughs> put a knife in the steak dinner, a fork in the steak dinner. Yep. So that's how they start going to market. And the thing is, uh, it actually works pretty well. So within that first year, 2002, even though even though Mike and Scott are only able to take $15,000 each out of the business to pay themselves, it actually grows pretty amazingly. So, so they do a million dollars in revenue in that first year. Now, of course, they're paying uh, R&D, they're hiring people, they're hiring engineers, uh, they're hiring product folks, and, and they are doing marketing. They're not doing sales, but they are doing marketing to drive demand and awareness uh, to their website for, for folks to, to buy the software. So it does a million dollars in year one. And even today, so this was 2002, if you're a SaaS company and you launch the product in the beginning of the year in April, and then you do a million dollars in that year, like that's pretty darn impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's just say seize the day wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So maybe you did make the right decision coming to Acquired instead. And it really just, it grows from there. So in 2004, they released their second product, uh, which is called Confluence. And that's a, a content collaboration software for teams. So sort of similar to SharePoint. Um, you can see they really start to try and build the the low-end better product if they will uh, you know, disrupt it to a lot of the Microsoft suite. Yeah, and in many ways, the thing they were competing with here, and they even referenced this in their investor materials, is they compete with open source. And I remember making a decision in 2008 at Cisco whether we were going to buy Confluence or whether we were going to just use MediaWiki and mm. the, the, the engine that runs Wikipedia and use that open source piece of tech. And ultimately, there, there's enough, I remember even in 08 as an intern, there was enough value creation from Confluence as a real sort of enterprise-grade, professionalized piece of software where it was worth paying for over the open source MediaWiki. Mm, interesting. So you weren't really comparing it against SharePoint. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, we didn't think it was going to be a thing we were going to pay for at first. And then it was just so much better than the free stuff we were evaluating that we did it. Interesting. And and you were at, at Cisco. Cisco. At the time, right? Yep. Like, I mean, that's a big company. And and what's super interesting and, and is interesting about uh, Atlassian and their whole sales model is they don't have to compete head on with the Salesforces and the Oracles and the Microsofts mm-hmm. um, because... Of course, you know, those uh, like Cisco, I'm sure, is a huge Microsoft and Salesforce customer. Totally. Um, but the intern was making the buying decision on whether we were going to use Confluence because like it was a self-serve thing. It was below the amounts that, you know, I had to check with lots of authorization for. I just asked my direct manager and he's like, oh, yeah, sure. We can. It's really easy to do. It was the first time that 
um, employees were really empowered to make their own buying decisions. And we, we'll get to this in tech themes, but this is when sort of BYOD, the bring your own device era was coming into full swing. And for the first time, um, the buyer and the user of software in the enterprise was actually being coupled. So this, this, this old era of, yeah, you know, if you're making B2B software, you just have to make it good enough for the buyer, not good enough for the user. Like you actually did have to start making it good enough for the user. Yeah. And this is a really good point and worth spending a minute on. Uh, Steve Jobs had a great quote about this. We'll, we'll try and link to it in the show notes uh, at one of the one of the All Things D conferences uh, that he did with Kara Swisher and, and Walt Mossberg. Um, and, and I think Kara asked him like, Hey, you know, why, why doesn't Apple do enterprise? Like, why do you only do consumer? This is back in 2009, 2010, uh, before Apple mm-hmm. did do more in enterprise. And, and Steve says, you know, this is the thing about like in consumer, it's the quality of the product that wins because each individual person is making their own buying decision and they are the user. So you have to make a good product and people vote kind of with their feet and their wallets, either they buy it or they don't. And we get that feedback, but in the enterprise, you're taking the CIO to a steak dinner, you know, and convincing him to buy this whole suite of software, but, or him or her, but they don't use the product. The users are stuck with it. And, and Ben, what you're identifying and, and what Atlassian really latched onto is software got so cheap and distributed so easily, um, that it, it was individual users who are now making the decisions. Mm-hmm. Total transformation. Total transformation. So, okay. So 2004, they launch Confluence, their second product, and they keep growing. Uh, a couple of years later, uh, they're on, being in Australia, they're on a fiscal year end in June, not in December. Um, so in the fiscal... because all the time, it's like, you know, times are upside down, seasons are upside down. Yeah, exactly. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I think, I think uh, most of, I believe most Australian companies do June 30, fiscal year end. Huh could be wrong there huh. but microsoft uh, actually does too or at least did when i was there yeah that's right that's right uh i think they still do and uh so by fiscal year end june 2006 so four years after the company's founded they're doing 15 million in revenue um which is really nice scaling continue growing 2010 they acquire a product called bitbucket um which is also very interesting and the, the parallels between Atlassian and and Slack and GitHub, as we we mm-hmm. mentioned, are, um, are are very very apt. And, and Bitbucket is a competitor to GitHub, mm-hmm. um, so they acquire that. They offer they add that to their product suite. In 2012, they acquire HipChat, uh, and this is before Slack, but HipChat was really Slack before Slack. Man, man, it's making IRC better, giving yeah. it a nice little web interface. Now, of course, the Yammer guys would argue that Yammer was. HipChat before HipChat before no. Slack. <laughs> Yammer was Facebook and Twitter mashed together for the enterprise. Like this is chats, you know, synchronous communication, baby. It's yeah. the way of the future. So they add that, that to the product portfolio. 2013, they launch another product, Jira Service Desk. Um, so this is really for IT departments and other service-oriented uh, groups that are taking in tickets and responding to them. And this is like a Zendesk or yep. a Help Scout or something yep. like that. Um, so they really, you know, Atlassian kind of becomes this suite of all of these modern, you know, bottoms up uh, enterprise software packages, if you will. Um, and along the way, they, as we've said, they, they just keep growing and growing. In 2010, back in 2010, they do do the first secondary sale that we talked about in the beginning of the show. Excel, uh, the venture capital firm, 
uh, buys $60 million worth of worth of stock from the founders and employees. None of that goes to the company. Company doesn't issue any shares. Still, still an amazing investment by Excel. Oh, incredible, an incredible investment. Um, and I believe, uh, if I remember right from the uh, from the IPO prospectus, Excel owned about fifteen percent of the company. Yeah, it's. Uh, um, I've actually got the little graph right here. It was fifteen point two one. Just thinking about what that means, the company is doing so well that it, it puts the founders in a position where they can say look, we would love to give you some shares. The company actually doesn't need any of your dollars to, to grow right now. Like we're not going to plow that back into the business because everything is humming along so nicely and the growth rates that that we want, we're getting just without any, you know, investment capital. But you, you can have some of our shares. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then the founders, you know, talk about this quite a bit. You know, part of it was was getting some liquidity for for themselves, but also part of it too was having some sort of, signifiers of professionalism on board yeah. as they're starting to sell to again not sell with salespeople but be part of and and have accounts with large organizations yep. thinking like who are these guys <laughs> right um and and you know having excel one of the you know best vc firms in, in silicon valley behind them uh, helped a lot yeah but, and, and you, you have to imagine too the psychology behind that like obviously the founders so at ipo the founders um scott had 39 percent and mike had 39 percent still a ton of skin in the game. So that's not really a concern, but having a bunch of liquidity from all your hard work, the psychology of it, I mean, it has to free you up to think bigger because you're no longer playing not to lose. Not that they were playing not to lose before, but like there's very little about you that's playing not to lose. You kind of never have to work again. Your life is good. At this point, it's all about like really go big or go home. Like how, how big can we carry out our vision and stay true to our principles and it, it gives them sort of that breathing space to you know see how how big their original vision could become yeah and you know to your point about incredible investment by excel if you if you do the math on that investment they valued the company at 400 million dollars and uh and a few years later well five years later in 2015 they'd go public uh we'll get to this ultimately at a four and a half billion dollar and, and now <laughs> it's north of 10 and now it's at almost 11 billion dollars so great great investment by excel they do also then raise another almost 200 million dollars uh from t row price in 2014 but again it's not raising uh they were buying i believe that was was mostly from employees um and that was, I believe, T. Rowe bought about 6% of the company. So that implies a over $3 billion valuation. Hmm. So again, for Excel, even in just a couple of years, they're getting marked up from $400 million to over $3 billion. But, but it's merited by, by the growth of the company. So fiscal year end 2013, so June 30th, 2013, they do just shy of $150 million in revenue. The next year, $215 million in revenue. And then 2015, so the fiscal year ending right before they go public, they do over 300 million in revenue, 320 million. So just incredible growth. The flip side of that, which is interesting because you just so rarely see this in Silicon Valley companies these days, but I think is really a, a heritage of how the company was built and, and grew, they were profitable. And, and not just like marginally profitable <laughs> but in in that last fiscal year before they went public they generated almost a hundred million dollars in operating cash flow 
Um, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't what, know what any private company today is generating a hundred million dollars of profit. I mean, I know a lot of private companies that are generating negative a hundred million dollars <laughs> in operating cash flow right now. Um, but really, really impressive. Um, so November 2015, they do file to go public in the U.S. And really, we'll get into narratives here in a minute. But um, it's really, in a lot of ways, a coming out party for them with the investor community. I mean, um, they were somewhat under the radar, but these numbers are incredible. And, and even more so, again, because of the heritage of the company and their their sales model, they're only spending, when, when all this comes out in their IPO prospectus, they're only spending about 20% of revenue on sales and marketing uh, to grow that fast. I mean, your average SaaS company is spending anywhere from 50 to over 100% of annual revenue on sales and marketing, just trying to grow not even as fast. Yeah, I mean, it really speaks to the, the, the quality of the product, and it speaks to the audience that they're speaking to. I heard literally three times in the last week an engineer tell me, if I have to pick up the phone and call your sales representative, I'm not buying your service. And it's so funny thinking about um, how that was just the expected norm for so long. We're seeing a return of it again in a lot of particularly analytics companies that are that are moving to a more enterprise sales model. But like for this demographic, you know, uh, especially the, the the engineering demographic, like that's that's not how to win them over. Being really easy to integrate with without any human interaction is a really great way to win them over. And what's really, you know, for a number of years, um, especially since Atlassian's been public and people have realized, hey, this this model of no traditional sales can work. Part of the knock on it by people who um, are advocates of a traditional sales model is, well, exactly what you said, Ben, like this works for this demographic. Um, yeah. uh, will it work for other demographics? No, you probably still need to do the steak dinners and whatnot. And, and we're knocking steak dinners here that, you know, that can be a very viable way to build a company, too. And there is, it is important to build relationships with the people you're selling to. But with Slack emerging in the last few years and Slack penetrating teams of all types in every type of organization, you know, they have the Atlassian type sales model here. Yeah. There, are no, there are no sales reps uh, going around for Slack to the New York Times or whomever is, uh, you know, are their big customers. Yeah, very few. In fact, I think Slack actually may have more than Atlassian, but I think Atlassian still has like actually none. Yeah. Pretty now, crazy. one thing they do have is a channel, and and I actually don't know if Slack does as well. Um, but the the channel is is super helpful because some customers, especially large ones, um, just aren't going to buy uh, software unless they do have someone they can talk to. Mm-hmm. And so what Atlassian said is like, okay, great, we're not going to do that ourselves, but mm-hmm. we will work with third party value added resellers who can effectively be that synthetic. Uh, sales touch point um, for for buyers who need that. So mm-hmm. they have invested a lot in that, and and that does take both marketing dollars and and people headcount within Atlassian who help empower the channel to make those sales. So so it's unfair to say that there is absolutely zero sales effort, but yeah. it's just not the same traditional like we have a sales force with you know territory managers and reps and a VP of sales in right. the same way that. Um, you know, Oracle or, or Salesforce or, or, you know, any other enterprise or SaaS company does. Yeah. If I had to foreshadow a little bit later of my sort of open questions, I think it's a risk to the business that 
I mean, most of their revenue comes from Jira and Confluence. Those are mostly aimed at engineering organizations or product management organizations. You know, there's probably a saturation point on those where you have to start trying to sell all this suite of other products that integrate really well and generate significantly more of your revenue mix from those other products. And those don't sell themselves as well as these products do. So I think, you know, the margin that we're seeing um, from uh, from Atlassian probably decreases in the coming years as they have to start adding more of these other products to the mix. Hmm. Interesting. Well, and certainly their other product lines have more competition uh, mm-hmm. than Jira does, mm-hmm. um, which is a big part of it too. Uh, and when you have competition, then you may need to sell more yep. uh, or, or put more effort into sales, um, so to speak. Well, to wrap up the history and facts, uh, November 2015, as we said, they file to go public. December 10th, they price their IPO at $21 a share or four, just about $4.4 billion market cap. That translates to, so again, nice, nice return for Excel there. Uh, and, and the founders you know, are billionaires officially at that point. And then on the first day of trading, they close up at $27.48, so uh, almost $6 billion market cap. Really incredible. And and since then, well, a couple things have happened. So one, uh, they've always been an acquisitive company themselves. They acquired Trello Mm -hmm. uh, and added that to their product suite in January of 2017. And, And this is worth pointing out. So they they sold about 10% of the company. They raised 462 million in the IPO. They bought Trello for 425 million. Interesting. It's an interesting, you know, the, the now again, of, they're generating cash though too. So like Totally. They have really all options at their fingertips. Yep. Recently in September 2017, you know, we've mentioned Slack quite a bit and and HipChat and HipChat was was Slack before Slack as Atlassian would would have it. Um, they're actually, they've completely reimagined HipChat. They've renamed it Stride um, and are trying much more directly to compete with Slack. Built, built from the ground up. Built from the ground up. Yeah. And with more more features than Slack, David. Did you know you can assign tasks? You can do lightweight project management. There's, Which uh, is true. There's, uh, and it makes sense given Jira and yep. their heritage. It, it is attractive, but on the other hand, like the stickiness for these products like how many teams who have started on slack now are going to switch like yeah not to mention network really effects hard. of uh non like outside your organization it's super easy for me now to add another slack to my life there's zero chance i'm going to also have what is stride. it stride running yeah. <laughs> on uh, in addition like what is it I, again i have nine yeah that's 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 slack's <laughs> marketing message right there what is it again try yeah. slack yeah <laughs> or you you know stick with slack but no honestly like i have nine slacks i'm not gonna have a nine slacks in a stride yeah there's, there's no way you're not gonna keep another app open also can we get more creative on the names like yeah. five letters starting with S and i mean <laughs> slack's guilty of it too because they in many ways were replacing skype so and, you know yeah well it is it's kind of a low blow right like <laughs> kudos to microsoft for teams <laughs> <laughs> indeed uh kudos to microsoft so despite the struggles in the chat communications part of their product suite the company has pretty much killed it like alassian C- continued 50 percent year over year growth yep. uh this most recent earnings call that i was just listening to their stock price jumped 25 percent 
Incredible. after the earnings call a yeah. few, last week, this uh, a few I, days ago. Well, it was a few days ago. And and as we said, now the company is valued, uh, their market capitalization is almost $11 billion, uh, which is really incredible. Casual. And for, you know, not having <laughs> casual, just casual, <laughs> you know, add, a, add another couple Bs to the bank account, literally for the founders. But again, zero venture capital. Uh, Amazing. Pretty incredible. Well, I think we've talked about the narrative around the IPO or, or at least alluded to it um, quite a bit, but to, to switch to that, I, I think this is our first narrative section where I would argue that the narrative when the company went public was like, wow, here's this pretty amazing company in Australia that is showing up all these venture-backed companies in Silicon Valley and has built a really innovative new way to, to sell enterprise software. Um, and I think that's true. <laughs> yeah. And to illustrate that their S one was incredibly straightforward and did not, there was nothing hiding in there behind, well, we only have to show X, Y, Z. So we're only going to show X, Y, Z. They had a full cohort analysis in their S one. Yep. And that, I mean, that's not the cohort analysis, is like a newer way to evaluate businesses. And that's not mandated by the SEC, but you can see revenue growth by cohorts since their founding date in the S1. And you can see a lot of things in their S1 where they've just got an organically really great business and they're just telling the story. Yeah. And, and I, honestly, I think you look at Blue Apron and you look at some other IPOs recently, it's a little confusing reading the IPO because you're not actually sure even after you read 50, 60 pages about the business, including risks and including all their financials, how is the business doing? It's quite clear when you read Atlassian's it's doing great. Yeah. And, oh, and this is, you know, when I said a minute ago that this is our first narrative, um, what I meant was it, it kind of matches up. Like what Atlassian was telling people was the same thing that people in the press and in the investor community were were believing when they when they read the S one, um, and in practice over the last two years has played out. And, and compare that versus some of the other ones we've looked at. Um, yeah, we haven't covered the Blue Apron IPO, but we covered the Snap IPO, yep. and the jury is still out. But there was a huge disconnect between Snap positioning themselves as a quote unquote camera company, um, that being their narrative, and the investor community saying wait a minute, <laughs> Instagram just kneecapped your growth. Yeah. And in the opposite direction, we, you know, th this is, this IPO happened within a month of the Square IPO. Square also had an incredibly solid fundamental business on their hands. If you look at, um, if you go back and listen to that, that Square episode, um, one of the, the insights that David and I sort of uncovered from talking to some friends there is, uh, Square has a 30% return on marketing spend basically on every single cohort Every cohort is revenue churn neutral. So they basically, you know, can can just keep spending money, getting additional customers, and some of those drop out, but the other ones yep. make up for the ones the who dropped out. And the yeah, I mean, extremely predictable business. And the story that was spun in the press about that IPO, about it being a down round, about a lot of the external factors of the business, like just just didn't pay attention to how solid that business was. And when you look at the the ensuing days since that IPO, the couple of years that have gone down by, it was a great stock to buy. And oh the business goodness. kept doing exactly what it was doing before the IPO, after the IPO. And yet every story in the, the press was that the sky was falling. Yeah. And I mean, 
I know you guys hate uh, hate follow-ups, so this is not an official follow-up. <laughs> but since the square... You give a guy <laughs> some survey feedback and he takes it way too he far He takes to it heart. way too far. <laughs> but since we, we did our, our episode on the Square IPO, which is still one of my favorites, because this dichotomy between the... Uh, the narrative at the time of the sky is falling for Square and the, the reality that it was a great business is it's like the opposite of what you would expect. Square has killed it even since uh, the episode. Yeah. I mean, they're now trading. I, th- I think they were up after earnings today, I think close to $35 a share. Wow. And remember, they IPO'd at under 10. Wow. Yeah, crazy. Well, I think that probably does it for, for narratives. For narratives, yeah. Um, what, what would have happened otherwise? Yeah. Okay. So, well, here's a question. Um, one also that we've talked about on this show quite a bit is relevant in the tech world right now. So I hesitate even to ask it because I think companies should go public. But why did they go public? They, they didn't need to. Yeah. Um, the founders owned the company. Yeah. So the, the quote that they gave to a, uh, a news outlet was that Atlassian will use proceeds from its IPO for corporate purposes, including capital expenditures and potential acquisitions. Um, like Trello. Like Trello, um, that that many people are speculating they overpaid for. There's a great case to be made for why they bought it. They spent about the same amount of money on Trello that they raised in the IPO. Their cash balance uh, after the IPO was hovering around um, five to seven hundred million for for the the quarters after the IPO. So you know the IPO did add a material amount of cash to their war chest to do things with. I guess it gave them option value in an increasingly competitive landscape to be a lot more acquisitive. They haven't been as acquisitive as they could have been. Mm-hmm. And Trello to date hasn't meaningfully added to their business. I mean, it's added a lot of users. I don't know how the cross sell is going. I don't know, yeah. um, you know, if they're starting to monetize Trello at all, but or, or more than they were. But I think it bought them option value and it was pretty cheap option value for, you know, a little over 10% of the company. Yep. Now, again, to play devil's advocate, though, now they're a public company. Now they have to report every quarter. But I do think, like, as we've been saying all episode, this is a really good company with very solid fundamentals and very predictable growth and, and customer um, you know, retention and behavior and acquisition. If you have a good company, there's kind of nothing to be afraid of, of going public, right? Yeah. Gosh, I forget who's who said this. It might have been Zuckerberg. I think it was Mark Zuckerberg. The uh, discipline forced by going public is a really good thing for your business. Yep, yep. Um, and it, it seems like Atlassian had their house in order beforehand, but they got the benefits that come with going public and, and um, yep. having to report. And in so. that easier to make acquisitions, both for cash and stock. Yeah. Um, but I think also like there's, you know, I wonder if in listeners that have listened to multiple episodes of, of ours probably know where we fall on the spectrum here, but People in Silicon Valley recently over the last few years have been um, very, very negative about the public markets, saying it's all short term focused. You know, the stock market is a voting machine, not a weighing machine and whatnot. But I think if you look at, you know, the IPOs that we've covered on this show, the Facebook IPO, um, the Square IPO, now the Alassian IPO, and, and on the other side of the ledger, the Snap IPO. I think you could make a strong argument that the public markets are actually a weighing machine for hmm. tech companies in a way that the private markets right now seem to be a, a voting machine. I would say we certainly haven't covered an, uh, a company yet that has IPO'd where the short-term 
outlook of the public markets shot down their share price and hurt the company without the company's product having the the majority of the blame there. Yeah. Like well, I, Square, it, but I think Square was the Square IPO was a fault of positioning and um really Goldman as we talked about. On yeah. That. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, post IPO, yeah, post like, I don't IPO. Think, no, you, you could imagine a scenario where I would say, I don't want to take my pu- company public because the public markets will lose faith. Everything will actually be great at the company. Um, we'll have to do stupid stuff to keep the stock price up. If we want to have a long view, we won't do the stupid stuff. And then our stock price will drop and thus employees will be undercompensated. We won't be able to, you know, hire well, we won't be able to, we will, of um, you know the, all, all sorts of problems that, that arise from a low stock price, but I, I, we haven't seen it. Well, we haven't covered it yet. We not to say that it, it doesn't happen, but um, you know we have a number of data points now, and including the Amazon IPO. Uh, I mean, talk about a company that uh, you know was able to innovate, uh, probably arguably more so than any other company in history as a public company, um, and be very long term focused. Uh, for years and years, not generating a profit. We have a lot of data points on this show that being public exactly to your point, Ben, can enforce a discipline and a rigor on companies and management teams that you're not going to get otherwise. Yeah, I think the only thing that that would have happened otherwise is maybe they wouldn't have bought Trello, but Mm -hmm. I still think they probably would have. They had twice as much money in the bank as they raised in the IPO. Question on do they need to be more acquisitive? Hmm. Like one thing I was thinking through as I was reading the criticism that um, Atlassian's highest selling products are for engineers so they can be sold in the self-serve way. Like, are they saturating the market? Like, do they do they need to branch out because there's not much more growth left in their core core businesses? Well, it's interesting. They they certainly now position themselves as a as a company that makes products for teams mm-hmm. um their nasdaq ticker is team is team yes <laughs> and uh what i what i don't know didn't research enough and and is hard to tell on the surface is whether that's always been their positioning or in mm-hmm. the past where they developer tools mm-hmm. and now their teams because they're trying to expand their market as they've perhaps saturated the developer and product manager mm. market well, that's interesting. I mean, they've had these values for a long time. In their S1, um, they uh, they have these values that that they state, um, and those are their open open company. And I'll I'll keep it nice for kids. Open company, no BS. Build with heart and balance. Don't f the customer. Play as a team. Be the change you seek. None of those are really developer focused. Nope. And you know, play as a team. That's and it's actually it's a nice little. It's play comma as a team. Mm, so, nice. Um, you know, I, I think this is their, their vision for a long time. It certainly gets a little rewritten and quite a bit shored up over time as every company's does. I'm sure snap wasn't started as a camera company, but I'm on board with it. You raise a fair point though, that it is far from assured that, uh, Atlassian will have the kind of success that they've had with Jira as they expand into other market segments too. Mm-hmm. I just don't know that many people outside of tech that that use Atlassian's products. And that's yeah. kind of fine because everything's becoming tech and software is eating the world and um, there's still plenty more. I mean, if you look at what Microsoft sold enterprise software to, Atlassian still has a lot of headroom above it. Um, Very true. But this is kind of the thing about Slack, though, right? Like 
there are people of all types and all levels of technological, um, you know, uh, familiarity who use Slack. I mean, the New York, famously one of Slack's first, you know, real first customers that really made at least the investor community take notice about this might be something really special and different was the New York Times newsroom started using Slack. Uh, you know, this is not just developers that are doing this. Yeah, it's a great point. You want to move on to tech trends? Let's do it. Cool. Before we start diving into these, I think we've covered a lot of them. There was one chart that was really interesting to me. Uh, in th- they have this great deck on their um, their investor site where you can kind of look at what their general positioning is to investors and why they're a, a good stock to buy. And one of them is that their R&D as a percentage of revenue is like head and shoulders above a bunch of their competitors. So they're, they're at 37%. And working on down from that is Workday, Tableau, Twilio, Box, Zendesk, New Relic, Splunk, on down. And a lot of those that are f- way further down are like intense technology companies. And you never, I mean, at least I never really think about Atlassian as, boy, they do, they do hardcore tech. Like for Tableau, I'm like, wow, that that's a heavy lift to do that data visualization and on on the server. And you think about, um, you know, Splunk, like analyzing log files and the the incredible sort of computer science challenges involved in handling all that data and all the lookups and all the writes and reads. Atlassian must pour a lot of cash into like security, availability, uptime, because those are called out in a big way in their S1 as risk to the business. You know, if, if our customers ever stop trusting our reliability or security, then we're in trouble. And I think they probably pour a lot of into user experience. But I definitely, in preparing for this episode, you know, I've been trying to figure out, like, why is, why is Atlassian spending so much on R&D relative to other seemingly more technical companies? I think they they argue, and when you listen to them talk about it, that this is part of the the nature of their model. Like they're not spending on sales; they don't have a sales force. And what that means, and what the founders and um, other folks in the company talk about in practice, that means that the sales force of the company is the product itself, mm-hmm. and the product. Um, not just that the product has to be good, but it also, it does, but also the product has to literally sell itself. Like there has to be a lot of, um, thought and, and effort and work put into, you know, the conversion funnel and, and tracking it and, and analyzing it along the way and making sure that, because again, there's no, there's no human, the, the way they talk about it is that like, when you, when you have a sales force, you're using humans to solve problems about adoption of your product uh, which is fine, but that's just what you've chosen. They've chosen to use product to solve problems mm-hmm. about adoption. Um, and so I think that they would argue that uh, all of the R&D that they're spending is sort of what they have to do because they don't have a sales force. Right, right. It's like if you're not spending on sales, then either you're applying it toward product or you're actually just applying it toward your margin. But in order to sell at the volume that they're selling at, they need to apply it to product. Yep. Yep. Really, what you also need is word of mouth, right? And virality. And and part of that's natural, uh, a lot of it, but you have to do a lot in the product to make that happen as well. And so I haven't dug in enough uh, to know or, or use the product or, or referred uh, enough people to know, but like, are they giving referral bonuses to people? You mm. know, if you, um, which, which many consumer companies do, right? Totally. I mean, that's like kind of the, the playbook for growth. Yeah. I haven't seen it. I've poked around a lot. 
maybe I may have missed it, but yeah, quite honestly, I think it's if you get used to one of these types of systems and then you're starting a new software project on a new team or going to a new company, like it is a big mental switching cost to learn a new system. A little little aside, so uh, recently for Taunt, we launched our alpha. The entire product management and, and uh, product roadmap for that lived on a gigantic whiteboard. It was a you know, it's an eight foot tall by probably 16 feet wide thing that we taped off with swim lanes and we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sticky notes. And it's an incredible way to do project management, Hmm. like to be able to visualize every moving part all at once outside of a monitor is like the best thing ever. But unfortunately you have to grow up at some point and you have to scale at some point. You have to actually start estimating hours and doing triage and putting things to buckets and, um, when the decision comes to to decide as a team what are we going to use you almost never pick a new tool it's Mm. always what does somebody know really well and it's usually what does the person who's going to be spending the most time in it do really well i don't think they need referral bonuses i just think they need to provide a good experience for someone once and then they got them for a long time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well maybe you know in a couple years when AR and VR become a thing. Yeah. You can have the best of both worlds. Honestly, I think that's a killer, killer app for, for VR and AR. Yeah. Because I think a, a monitor is just not nearly enough space to visualize work items and tasks. I totally, we, you know, uh, <laughs> I went through a period in, in my, my new venture, uh, where we had a whiteboard and then unfortunately we, we, we moved offices and, and then we didn't have a whiteboard and then now we have a whiteboard again and like, it's night and day being able to just (laughs) physically visualize your plans and what you're working on, um, is so different than, than doing it on a, on a screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's uh, maybe that's the killer Jira app of the future is AR, VR, AR, VR. Well, (laughs) we'll leave that to the future. Um, I think all my tech themes have been covered as well. Yeah. I got, I got nothing. Should we move on to grading? Let's do it. So, Our definition of grading on this show is um, for an acquisition, you know, how beneficial was it to the, how good of a decision was it to the acquirer to acquire the acquiree? And similarly for IPOs, how good of a decision was it to do the IPO? What did it allow them to do? It allowed them in practice what they've actually done, almost nothing. It gave them option value. It gave them credibility to sell into the enterprise and they, you know, they were doing a great job of that before, but on the, you know, what did it cost them? Not much. I mean, it's, yeah. they, they, they only sold 10, 11% of the company. Um, lots of people who needed liquidity got liquidity. Like it, it was a nice reward for lots of employees for, um, presumably Excel. Um, it, uh, it, well, it's it, not it, a, let's not forget here too. This company at IPO was 80% of it was owned by the two founders. Founders, insane. You know, I mean, this was a very personal decision. Like, uh, so, so does that mean they still, like, at, at some point, if they decided to sell a bunch of stock, they have to do that super slowly, right? Because they're, if they ever wanted to liquidate, that would flood the market with supply. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'm sure they oh. do it over time. Yeah. Um, in, in structured sales over time. But, um, but I, I think that's gotta be a big reason, right? Is like they, uh, and especially Scott who, who didn't come from a, from a wealthy family, like they were, they were paper billionaires until, right. um, until this point. 
and uh, and at some point <laughs> you you probably want you know uh, your 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 billions to be real, <laughs> not not right. paper. Yeah, I mean the way I look at it, literally nothing bad happened. Uh, only potential good things could have happened, and some good things could or did happen. B B plus. The funny thing is the story behind the company is great and reviewing the company and, and, and talking about how well positioned it is and their journey is awesome. The actual IPO itself is like we have a hard time. I have a hard time grading it because I'm emotionless about it. Yeah. But isn't that like this is kind of the dream, right? Like this is what uh, uh, like what your your teachers in like, you know, IPO and company building school tell you is like yeah. the IPO should be not a big event. Right? I want <laughs> I want the cowboy situation, though, where the Facebook, you're, right? you know, you're 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 riding hard into the ground. You need the capital infusion. It happens. You pull the e-brake, you turn around, you got all this new cash, you use it <laughs> and then you ride off into the sunset in this, you know, flame of glory where you're suddenly on your king again. Like that's an A. That's an A plus to me. This is this is uh, this is like uh, just be, this is being really responsible. <laughs> it's funny. I was I was reading an interview. Um, oh shoot, I'm blanking on the name of um, the guy who's the chairman of the board now. Was the founder and CEO of Great Plains Software, um, and uh, uh, he was talking about how you know these two kids came to him. And this is in preparing for the IPO and adding to their board and getting you know a, a public company ready board you know, and asked him to, to be the, be on the board and ultimately be the chairperson. And he was like, they're like way more responsible and risk averse and conservative than I am. I'm supposed to be the adult supervision. <laughs> I feel like the cowboy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm conflicted here. Like, I agree with you too. Like you, everybody wants to see the, you know, the James Bond movie, right? Like, but, um, <laughs> But this is the right way to run a company. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm going to give it an A. There you go. There you go. Well, that Atlassian is who your parents want you to marry. Yeah, totally. It's not (laughs) the exciting company. They make developer tools like they call it team collaboration. But like, let's be real here. It's, you know, developer tools. All right. We'll take that A. I mean, but, you know, it might not be the, the company your parents want you to marry. But, you know, Mike and Scott are like perhaps the wealthiest people in Australia <laughs> right now. So they're, they're having a pretty good time. That's true. That's true. I, I do want to go on a little tirade right here. If you're going public, please, God, name your company, name your stock ticker, the name of the company. Like it is, I get it. Yeah. There's like a trend of this right now. Of I not, get it. Like Tableau data. Like I get it that you, you get to make a point about like, this is what we're all about. But like, it's just annoying. This to is one interpret. of those things that's not going to age well. Like no. this is going to be like a, a 2010s thing that when, you know, people look back at like ridiculous stuff from the nineties or whatever, like this is going to be one of those things, this and, and, you know, chest length beards. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not going to age well. No. Anyway, I just wanted to get that out. So carve outs. I feel like I'm behind on this, that everyone else read this book last year and it, and it made the rounds and it got raved about, but oh my God, is Shoe Dog good. Oh, it's so good. It is, it is uh, for listeners who, who haven't heard of it, it's the, uh, the Phil Knight book and Phil Knight was the, the founder of Nike. I have never read a biographical nonfiction, supposedly it's a business book that was so compelling, like thriller type page turning compelling and 
I read the context around the book, the meta story of, I guess, Phil Knight went back to Stanford and took a creative writing class. He audited creative writing after being the CEO of Nike to like write this memoir. And he personally researched a lot of the things rather than relying on his memory because he knew they would conflict and he contorted stories over time. So he's there's points of the book where he says, I remember it like this, but everyone that I've talked to and all the records say it actually happened like this. It's that the, the meta story is almost as good as the actual story itself, which is g- glorious and exciting. And there's so many inspiring and there's so many lessons to be taken. So I, I don't care what you're interested in. You will find something amazing about this book. Oh, so good. You've probably forgotten this was my carve out, you know, like 20 episodes back. No way. <laughs> well, okay. So I knew it made the rounds. I, I, told, I, I told this then, but I'll, I'll repeat it now. Uh, I'm smiling so much. So uh, my graduation from, from GSP, from business school at Stanford, Phil Knight was our graduation speaker. Whoa. And the speech was essentially like the draft of Shoe Dog. It hadn't come out yet. It came oh. out uh, a year or two later. And, uh, and he came and gave the speech and it was, it was shoe dog in like 15 minute graduation speech format is so good. I should listen to back episodes. So good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well I can't top that, but, um, but I have a similar carve out, uh, either on the last episode or two episodes ago, my carve out was a NPR interview with Bruce Springsteen and, uh, inspired by that. I am currently reading, uh, not done yet, but the, his autobiography born to run, uh, really, really good. Very different from shoe dog, but also great. You know, I think what, uh, Bruce and, uh, and Phil Knight, you know, have in common is just like, they were so obsessed with their trade. Like there was nothing else 24 seven. All they thought about, all they did was, you know, for Bruce, it was being, you know, a, a musician and a songwriter. And for Phil, it was running a shoe company. Um, it was everything to them. Uh, and, uh, it's really inspiring, inspiring to read. So. Yeah. I, I, there's just this great quote where Phil says, all I could think about all day, I'm paraphrasing, was my cash, my liabilities, my equity and shoes. <laughs> <laughs> That's obsession right there. That is obsession. Well, should we wrap this up? Let's do it. Listeners, thanks for uh, for tuning into this one. If you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. If you feel so inclined, we would love a review on iTunes. We uh, we really appreciate both the feedback and what it does for uh, for helping new listeners to discover the show. Tweet about it. We are at Acquired FM, um, and you can join the Slack at Acquired.fm. Anything I'm forgetting, David? I think that's it. All right. You want to go get dinner? Let's do it. Night. Thank you.